Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. All right, friends. Shalom. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. So nice to see you all. Thank you. Thank you. So good to see you. Um, the war, it's become a marathon. And news is that Israel is not stopping in Gaza. Um, the war up north is heating up. And so you just like, it seems like a domino has fallen and just hold on tight <laughs> because we don't know where this is going to take us. But um, on a personal level, I'll tell you that over Shabbat, um, I had a little bit of a life-changing event for me. My oldest brother um, had the first grandson in the family, which means that Tahila and I became a great uncle and a great aunt, which made us feel much older, I think, than we should I, great uncle. I mean, that's like a really old man, is that not? And all of a sudden, Teal and I were like, well, I guess we were good uncles until now. And now we're great uncles. And um, my parents became great grandparents. And the Brit circumcision uh, was over Shabbat. And the whole family got together to celebrate Shabbat together. And in the middle of the ceremony, I, you know, who knows why thoughts come or where they come from. But uh, I'm in the Judean mountains, surrounded by all of my family, all of my children and my brother's children, and we're all together. And I have this flashback to when I am about my youngest son's age, Noam, and he's about eight years old. And my older brother, who is now just becoming a grandfather, he's maybe maybe 17 years old, 16 years old, something like that. And he's driving me to my soccer game because he was my coach. And we get to the soccer field and we're all sitting in the goal. And my brother is like, has this little clipboard that he's like taking notes on. And my father is on the side of the field, watches all of my games. And then and, and my mother hands the new baby over to my father. And my father then passes it to my brother. And my brother then puts the baby on the Kiseshel Eliyahu, Elijah's chair in preparation for the Brit. And I just saw so much happen in one moment. And it was out of this world. That's what life is. It's so deep. My little niece who was born right around the time that Tahila and I got engaged has become a mother and watching my brother turn into a grandson, grandparent and just the intergenerational love and adventure and what's so unbelievable, that is what life is made of. And the enemy, the evil ones in the world, just trying to convince people not to have children, just enjoy video games and the pleasures of this world. And they like miss what the entire world, what this is, what we was all created for. And they asked me to lead uh, Friday night davening. So Friday night services, I kind of got everyone dancing and singing. And I gave over a little Torah for the audience that was there. If they already gave me the microphone, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do at that point. And I said, you know, it's the Parsha of Shemot. And in the Parsha of Shemot, the Midrash says that once Pharaoh decided that he was going to throw all of the male children into the Nile, the men in Israel separated from their wives. They said, that's it. How can we have more children? Uh, Pharaoh's going to throw our boys into the Nile. Better to not have children at all. We can't just have children that will be killed. And there's a whole back and forth. And this is really when Miriam begins to shine. She says, Abba, how can you do that? 
Pharaoh has said death to the boys, but you're now decreeing death to also the girls. You're going to annihilate all of the people of Israel, all of the children of Jacob. There'll be no continuation. And then Amram, Moses' father, goes back to Yocheved, and then Moses is born. And there's this amazing Jewish tradition that you hear about in the most trying times, from the slaveries of Egypt to the death camps in Auschwitz. Somehow the Jews had enough faith to bring life into the world. And it felt like we had taken our place in Jewish history, just me and my little family, that as the Hamas and the world against Israel wants to bring death and darkness and destruction to Israel, here my little family chose to bring more life and more light into the world, even with all the dangers of what we know, what that means. You know, you're kind of going to raise your sons and soon my sons will be entering into the IDF and all of the risks that that entail. And I just want to thank Tabitha so much that every week before the fellowship, she creates this beautiful slide. And every week she puts the faces and the names of all the soldiers that had fallen that week. And, you know, we wake up to that every morning. It's the worst part of my day. But it is to know that that's the sacrifice that we need to make to live free in our land, to build the dream that God gave us so many years ago. And, you know, I just want to give you an insight because there's no way that this will ever make it onto the news. But this is a short video of soldiers that are finally leaving the war zone of Gaza after more than 90 days of battle. And I just want to share with you their holiness, their love of God. It's beautiful to be to, to see King David's army alive and well in our lifetime. And the words that they're singing are, and for everything Hashem, our God, we give thanks to you. Check this out. And for everything Hashem, our God, we give thanks to you. You know, there's just how much clearer can it get that there's forces of evil that are here to attack the forces of good. And even Israel's soldiers that have to deal with death and war and like the darker sides of the world as they leave the battlefield, 90 days of absolute hell on earth. What are they doing? It's like they're dancing at a wedding saying, and for everything, Hashem, our God, we give thanks to you. It's just you couldn't see something more beautiful than that. And so what I want to do now is what I love to do in every chance that we get as a fellowship, and that is to bring our worlds together, to bring our hearts together from Africa, from Asia, from all over Europe, from the United States, from Mexico. Just what an opportunity to be a reflection of Hashem's light in the world and to bring his light through this land and to broadcast that to the world and to just be one for just a little bit in prayer. And so that's how we'll kick off this fellowship today after watching those Chayalim just sing the praises of God. If only we could 
touch a little bit of what they must have felt, the gratitude and the joy of coming home to their families alive and well. Hashem, master of the universe, God of the legions of Israel, this war is so painful for all of us. Hashem, give us the eyes to see that you are healing us through this war. Give us the heart to hear that you are calling us to return. Give us the wisdom to defeat our enemies. Shine your light onto this land. Bless all of the families who are fatherless right now. Give the mothers strength to keep their homes running. Give the children courage and faith to get through these hard times. Please bring their fathers back home from the front lines. Hashem, look at this fellowship in what we're working to achieve in the world. Every Sunday, we start off our week together. Different time zones, different places, different worlds come together. All of us come together to bring the Torah from Israel to the world, to bring a, un a new unity into the world, to try and live out an example of the vision that you gave us through your prophets. In hard times, in good times, we have stood together. We've grown together. We've learned together and we've prayed together. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. Brothers and sisters, with you as our father and the Torah as our guide. Bless everyone in this fellowship. Everyone who is here today from around the world, Bless everyone that will be tuning in later on this week. And bless all those who will be tuning in years from now. We are all one movement for you. One movement for Jerusalem. Hashem, bring us all back to Jerusalem, to a new Jerusalem, to a rebuilt Jerusalem, where your presence will be restored soon in our days. Amen. All right, my friends, so let's kick it off. This is a thought that I've had. Um, last week, I, I went to a shiva house, um, you know, a house of mourners. And I, I, I visited that house five times. Never done that before. But I just kept on being called back, just compelled to go back, just to be there more, to hear more of the stories, to let my heart really be with that family. And... It says that a man must bless God for the bad in his life, just as he blesses God for the good in his life. And when someone dies, you say, blessed is the judge of the truth. And so even in the hard times, the idea is, why would we bless God in the hard times? Maybe we can... Uh, call out to God in the hard times. Maybe we can uh, cry to God in the hard times. We have to bless God in the hard times. And I think the idea there is that those hard times, they're just preparing us. They are a blessing. We just don't have the eyes to see it. Something is brewing. Something is growing. Something is being fixed. And in the Parsha, when Moshe first encounters God at the burning bush, God says, take off your shoes. And you'd think this is the first thing said to the Savior of Israel as the re 
the real redemption process starts. I mean, the first words that are being said, that's significant. Why would God open up his message with, take off your shoes, the place you are standing is holy. And so the sages of Israel explain that in the redemption process, you need to always go back to Moses and realize that God is speaking to you. The place that you are standing right now in your journey is holy. The place in your life right now, this place in time is holy. Don't just wait for the climactic end of the war. Don't wait for the vacation. Don't wait for the victory. Don't wait for crossing the finish line. Right now, take off your shoes. The place you're standing right now, this ground is holy. And so I just want to tell you that we're in this long process, the war of October 7th, the war of Simchat Torah, the war of the liberation, the war of our redemption. And there are three stages that Israel must pass through in order to achieve absolute victory. And these stages are chronological, meaning you can't get to stage three until you finish stages one and two. And so right now, when we think about what's happening in Gaza, the first stage is Israel needs absolute victory in this war. Absolute demolish the Hamas white flag, the absolute victory. And that's not clear right now. There are a lot of forces in Israel that are calling to capitulate, maybe sign a deal for the hostages, maybe kick the can down the road and deal with it later. No, right now, Israel needs number one. The first stage is absolute victory in war. Then the second stage, a people that have created such unholiness in the land of Israel, that have done such evil in the land of Israel, those people need to be removed from the Holy Land. And so now there's all these talks about emigration, separation through emigration. That's stage two. That needs to happen. In fact, that's really the guidance of the Torah from the get-go, that if you don't remove the evil from the land of Israel, they will be thorns in your side and thistles in your eyes. They'll be a stumbling block. And maybe that's going to take a lot of courage because Israel may have to stand alone, but Israel must eventually just emigrate all of the Gazans that want to wage war on Israel, get them out of the land. And stage three is Israel needs to go back to Gaza and resettle the land. That will be full victory, salvation, restoration in the land of Israel. Now, as you go down that list, there are um, the kind of the forces behind Israel, the consensus the support for those three stages go down. Number one, 95% of Israel wants absolute victory now. Emigration, I think it's about 80 to 90%. Resettling Gaza, that's like 70%. It's like it goes down in support. And so I just want to share with you what's on my heart. And I don't know what will be done with this. And you're the first to hear this in a real way. But I am working, praying, hoping. And this will never be able to happen without an extreme amount of siyata dishmaya, extreme amount of help from heaven. But what's been placed on my heart is to see a million man march from the kibbutzim that were destroyed on October 7th, all of Israel to march all the way to Gaza in support of our soldiers, in support of total victory. 
that's stage one. And what I've learned is the most compelling way to bring people on board, this has been studied over and over again, is to show them that's what everyone is doing. That's what everyone wants. There's a certain herd mentality that's a part of our human nature. There's a certain desire for unity in Israel that if Israel is doing it, I'm doing it. And that expression of a million people marching from the destroyed kibbutzim all the way to Israel, waving banners, Israel should trust in Hashem, Israel betach b'Hashem, you know, victory. Just all, I have so many ideas for so many banners. And just Israel marching, there's actually an ancient blessing that is to be made called Chacham Harazim. Uh, blessed are you, Lord our God, who is the wise one of secrets. And it's never been blessed in Israel before. And you need 600,000 men over the age of 13 in one geographic location to make this, it's like a Geula Bracha a blessing of the redemption. And I think that right now, Israel is at a place that we could bring a million people together to stand with our soldiers, to demand absolute victory in Gaza. And then the next stage is let Israel see that Israel is there, that we are unified in that movement. And um, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. It will need a lot of help from heaven but if in about a month from now, there's a live stream for the fellowship Sunday night <laughs> and we're marching to Gaza, that would just be truly unbelievable. So that's where my prayers are. That's where my energies are going right now. And slowly but surely, I think that Israel is ripe for such a move now. Just a giant display of unity, a display of faith, a display of support and We'll see where that takes us, but that's where I'm at right now. As far as the farm, it's like, okay, the farm right now is like, pause. <laughs> Gaza right now is like on the burner. We got to make sure that Israel wins. And there are three stages. So let's make sure we at least complete stage one. And I think we can really rally Israel together for that. And so that's sort of a vision into the future. And we will see how that goes. Um, now what I would love to do is I would love to invite Tehillah onto the fellowship. Is she here with us live? That was the yeah. original plan. It, yes. Excellent. Okay, good. And so Tehillah has some Torah that she's going to be sharing with us. And so, um, it was actually a Torah that was kind of developing over time. And each time Tehillah said, Oh, what about this? Oh, what about that idea? I'm like, wow, it's just brilliance and wonder. And so we are just so lucky to have her with us. So, Tehila, I'm passing it over to you to really kick off the Torah part of the fellowship. Here you go. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. And it's so great to see everybody. Um, so, you know, in these portions of you know, that we just read this past week of Shemot and that we're coming upon in Bayera, uh, we're reading about this transition of Moses, of Moshe Rabbeinu, from being a person, like just a, like a I don't want to say a guy, but being a person into being a leader, being who he's meant to be. And, you know, what's so interesting in, in Moshe being the leader, he has the ability to take us from slavery into salvation. He has the ability to take us from 
exiled into the land of Israel. So there's so much as we're in this time to be trying to learn from Moshe, what are the characteristics that you need? Now, whenever we think of Moshe, the first thing that of course comes to mind is his humility, right? He's the most humble of all men. He's the, the most humble person. And whenever you see somebody with a really outstanding characteristic, you have to ask yourself, well, how did they become that way? And what struck me in reading this week's Parsha was that Moshe doesn't seem to be born terribly humble. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but stick with me because we're, we're, you know, we the readers know that he comes from this humble beginning of like a life in a basket, being hidden for a few months in a closet and then floating around in a basket. But from Moshe's perspective, as long as he can remember himself, he is growing up in the lap of luxury and he's thinking he's a prince. Now, the first story we actually hear of Moshe, we don't know anything about him as his child, really. The first time he steps out into the world, he actually doesn't behave very humbly at all. He behaves in tremendous confidence and courage. He kind of acts like he runs the place. Uh, the first story where we see um, Moshe is in the second chapter in verse 11. It says, I bet I made my screen pop up. Second. Sorry. So the first thing that we see is that he steps out into the world and he goes to see the suffering of his brothers and sisters. It says, now it came to pass in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brothers and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brothers. He turned this way and that way. And he saw that there was no man. So he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So what actually happens the first time that Moshe steps out into the world, he looks around, he sees evil, but no one is doing anything about the evil. So he strikes the Egyptian himself. That's not a humble kind of fearful man, but an act of courage. Somebody who's stepping out to make justice and protect the weak. Now you would imagine that Paro's not going to be happy about this. So he buries him in the sand. But what's interesting here is that Moshe doesn't even lay low down. He doesn't become like humbly, you know, he doesn't like humbly slink away. It says that the very next day he goes out again. He goes out again. Now, what does he think is going to happen? Like, is it going to be a better world? It sounds like he's going out again to just keep on hammering away at making the world a better place. I mean, he has this willingness to keep out and just keep going out and fighting the good fight. Even if the possibility is that he's going to have these conflicts and that he's going to have to be, you know, really, really strong and courageous. And what do they see the next day? Even more darkness. This time, it's not darkness coming from an external force of an Egyptian hitting a Jew, but he sees evil inside the nation. He sees Hebrews fighting with one another. And it says he goes down on the second day, meaning it's just the very next day. And behold, two Hebrew men are quarreling. This is chat, uh, verse um, 13. <clears throat> And he sees these men quarreling and he said to the wicked one, why are you striking your, why are you going to strike your friend? And he retorted, who made you a man, a prince and a judge over us? Do you plan to slay me as you've slain the Egyptian? And then it says Moshe became frightened and said, indeed, the matter has become known. Now, what's so interesting here is we know Moshe and being so humble, but to the people around him, he's not appearing to be humble. They're like, are you a prince? Are you a judge? Are you bossing us around? They're not perceiving him as humble. They're perceiving him as being haughty. Now, what they could have said was, hey, mind your own business, you fancy prince. You're not our boss. But they dig even deeper in at him. You know, they say, hey, 
we don't only not want you to be our boss, we know what you did. There's like a veiled threat there. It's not, you know, not a thinly veiled threat. And it says, then Moshe became afraid. <clears throat> but at that point, he's just afraid. He still doesn't run away. Maybe those guys are mad and talking tough. They're not actually going to go behind my back to Pharaoh and tell on me. And then it says in verse 15, that Pharaoh heard what Moshe did and wanted to kill him. What does that actually mean when we put all the pieces together? These slaves, these brothers of his, that he was trying to protect the people being tyrannized by this horrible Egyptian government, go out and rat out the very man that was trying to help them. And it's only at that point that he runs away. Now imagine being a prince and then going from that to running away into the desert. You're wandering. You might even starve. It's like from the very, very top to the very, very bottom. And it's like Moshe wasn't born humble. He was humbled. The next time Moshe faces a task of doing something as a leader for Israel, that's when we're already going to meet him as a very humble man. Not because he was born that way, but look what happened to him. It turned him into that. And, you know, we're promised by our sages that our last salvation will be like the first salvation, meaning in our final redemption, there's going to be a lot of similarity to our redemption from Egypt. So as we're reading these stories in this week's in these week's portions of the redemption from Egypt, we need to read them really carefully and see what's happening because those are things that are going to happen to us. And now look carefully at what actually happens to Moshe. What was he trying to do? He was trying to fight the good fight and stand up to evil. And what happens to him? He's not appreciated by a lot of fellow Jews. And he ends up being chased and criticized and tyrannized by what at that time was the world international superpower telling him that he was using disproportionate force against evil. And, you know, and then the Jews that are not appreciative of him, his brothers that are not appreciative of him, they don't just keep it as an internal fight. They go behind his back and say bad things about him to the State Department or to the UN about, you know, what excessive force he's been doing and the genocide he's doing on Egyptian, uh, Egyptian officers. Is it any wonder that he became so humble? He actually becomes the humblest man on earth. And because it's really just the most humbling experience you can have to try so hard to be so good and have everything just seem to come up against you. And, you know, the similarities to us today in Israel are obviously striking because, you know, when anybody who, you know, we often feel so humbled in, in the efforts that we try to make and then come up against so much condemnation and opposition, even forces within ourselves trying to create, you know, neg negativity and lack of faith. And so, you know, it's really an interesting question. Why does it have to be that way? Because if I was writing the biblical story and no one hired me for this, but if I was, then the way I would have told the story would have been a little bit different. Like if I was making up the story, this could have been a perfect movie. Imagine Moshe, he's this prince growing up in the palace and you expect him to be all posh and spoiled and disconnected, but his heart goes out to his brothers. He strikes down the Egyptian and that starts this grassroots movement of like, yes, we're going to go back to the land of Israel. We're going to fight the evil. We're going to fight the Egyptian. That would have been such an amazing, inspiring story, but it doesn't happen that way. Moshe is not 
allowed by Hashem at that point, despite the amazing leadership that he's showing at the very beginning, he's not allowed at that point to be the leader. He had to first be humbled, humiliated, like ground into the dust before he could then be lifted up to be the leader. Because what is Hashem really telling us here? He's telling us that humility is the defining characteristic of what you need in order to inherit the land. The greatest warning that we receive every time that, you know, you know, when Hashem tells us about coming into the land of Israel, is just to be very, very careful not to have a haughty heart. We're always warned, don't have, you know, don't think that it was my strength that, you know, gave us the land, that was the strength of my hand that I've done all this. It's the greatest challenge we always face in Israel. And so the only way, the Torah is telling us, that the only way we could go to the land was with a leader that would be a model for us, not just of strength and courage, but strength and courage from a place of humility. So now what's really interesting is right at that junction between Moshe being a person and becoming a leader, there's this conversation at the burning bush. And Moshe is so humble that he refuses the task. This person that just on his very first time stepping out of the palace was already ready to take this massive action to fight against the tyranny of the Egyptians on the Jews at this point, doesn't believe himself believe, believe in himself at all. And when Hashem himself calls upon him to go and save the Jews, he's like, nah, I can't do it. I can't do it. Look at me. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. Nobody's going to listen to me. No one's. Why did he say nobody was going to listen to me? He's not just being unconfident. He's saying nobody's going to listen to me because it's happened to him already. It's happened to him already. He's been there. And then what does Hashem say to him? Hashem answers him, who gave a man a mouth? Who makes one dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Meaning, he says, so, so now go, I will be with your mouth and I will instruct you what to speak. The only way to find the balance is to have courage and action, but knowing that your strength comes from a firm. It's this balance that we're taught to have in order to inherit the land. He was like, well, I'm going to be so humble. I'm not going to do anything. Hashem says, no, 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 no. The essence of being able to inherit the land is to have courage of action but humility of spirit. And that's like, you know, the emotional roller coaster of this war um, has just been one smack in the face of humility after the next. Because, you know, after the original shock of the war and the sort of adrenaline that came in the beginning, it just sort of settles into this realization of humility. There's no way to describe our situation before October 7th better than as one of haughtiness. We thought that we ran this place, that we have the technology and the cameras and the planes. Who could invade us? Who could cross our borders? Yes, we had some terrorism, but like this ragtag group of terrorists, what does it have on us really? And yet, we weren't even invaded by like an impressive country. We were literally invaded by what was a few years ago, just a ragtag band of terrorists. And, and like you saw people crossing the border, like old men on on, on rickety crutches managing to cross over our technological borders. And with all of our high-tech army, that's been so humbling. And there were surely moments in the desert where Moshe asked himself, you know, what's the point? Maybe I should just give up. But Hashem's message to him was, who gives strength to anybody is me. He wasn't saying that. He said, you're not being humbled, Moshe, to weaken your spirit, but to bring you to the understanding that you have no strength of your own. Your strength only comes from Hashem. And when you live in that consciousness, in a consciousness of Hashem giving you the strength to act, then 
that's really the only state of mind that allows us to be worthy to inherit the land. Um, and so, you know, and, and, uh, I'll just finish one point going, at, at, Jeremy, do I have time to go a teeny bit deeper? Jeremy? Yes, you do. You're okay. rocking it. Oh, thank you, dear. So that, that for me just, you know, showed me how much there is to learn from this. But I was driving Jeremy crazy all day because I kept saying, Jeremy, there's this one thing in the portion that I don't understand. I really see this message of the humility that we need. Okay, I get it. There's something that really, I'm going to use a pun, something struck me. And what struck me was the constant use of the word strike. It says that there was an Egyptian striking, makeh in Hebrew, striking a Jew. And then it says that Moshe struck the Egyptian. And then it said that he saw two Jews fighting. And he said, why are you striking one another? And now what's very interesting, the Hebrew holds so much that you can't pick up in the English. Because the Hebrew word for striking is makah. Right after Moshe becomes the leader, and he has that moment with Hashem where Hashem says, no, 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 I'm going to be with you. When he comes back to the land of Egypt, what does he immediately do? He begins to bring the plagues onto Egypt. But the plagues are not really called plagues. That's an English word. In Hebrew, they're called makot, meaning strikings. The, the, the Egyptians were stricken. It's the exact same word, the identical word to the thing that happened to him in the beginning of his life, that he was seeing all of these people striking one another. That's exactly what he goes and brings on to Egypt. He kept saying to Jeremy, that's so weird. Why is this word appearing again and again? And <clears throat> what, <laughs> I don't know why, I keep, I keep having this pun like pop out of my mouth. What struck me was that it's if, if the idea is this humility, you know, it's beautiful that Moshe had this spirit come over him to help and to want to fight back against evil. <clears throat> but there was an element of it that was like, yes, I'm coming and I'm going to fight the evil. He didn't come and say, you know, at, like ask Hashem's advice or guidance. He just, you know, went out and did this thing. And then he was humbled. And it's like Hashem was perhaps saying to him, you can't humble Egypt. You can't humble Pharaoh until you yourself have become the model of humility. But now what's so interesting is that there are not two stations of this word in Moshe's life where we see the word strike, where he, he strikes the Egyptian and then he brings these, you know, these plagues that strike Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. But there's one more time when we see the word strike in Moshe's life. And when is it? When Moshe hits the rock. And that's essentially meaning his, his, uh, his sort of challenge that becomes his downfall. And it's like these bookends surrounding the heroism of his life are these times where he sort of uh, uninvited, you know, and un unasked by Hashem goes out and does this sort of hitting. And it's always the same Hebrew word. And I found the most interesting midrash. There's one midrash about the end of Moshe's life where he says to Hashem, Hashem, why do I have to die? I have a great die. I didn't do anything wrong. And Hashem says, oh, you think you're better than Abraham? Do you think you're better than, and he says, well, you know, from Abraham came Yishmael. And he goes, well, do you think you're better than Yitzhak? 
And then he says, well, from, you know, from Yitzhak came Esav. And he says, well, do you think that you're better than Noah? He said, well, Noah didn't fight for everyone to survive, but I fought for the Jewish people. And then he says, well, what have I ever done wrong? And what do you expect Hashem to say? You expect Hashem to say, well, you hit the rock, right? But that's not what Hashem says in the Midrash. Hashem says, you struck the Egyptian. And I thought, well, that's a strange Midrash. It's like it's trying to catch your attention of what you think he's going to say, what Midrash is going to say, and then bring you back to the beginning to show you those are actually perhaps the same thing. Perhaps they're the same thing. What bothered Hashem? What was wrong in striking the rock? Hashem says, you didn't sanctify my name, meaning people, even if unintentionally by you, Moshe, the people perhaps got the impression that you were the one drawing out water. And it's the same thing. Had you, in the very beginning, struck down the Egyptian and started this grassroots rebellion, everyone would have said, Moshe saved us. The only way to truly inherit the land is by constantly having this consciousness showing the people what it means to know that Hashem is entirely in charge. And so Hashem said, Moshe, you're amazing. I love you, but you're not the leader to take them into the land because you went back to this model of striking on your own. They need somebody to take them in. It's going to constantly be showing them that all of their strength only comes from me. And so Moshe was able to become that leader for a certain amount of time. And then at the end of his life, it was time for him to step down and allow a new leadership that would model that for Israel inside the land. So that really, um, for me, gave me this whole idea, kind of gave me encouragement that although we're feeling so humbled here in the land, that perhaps it's going to be an opening for us to really examine our hearts and realize that any strength that we can have only comes from Hashem. And perhaps through that, we'll actually merit to deserve this beautiful gift that Hashem has given us here in Israel. So with that, I wish everybody a good, a good week, guys. Thank you so much, Dela. That was absolutely beautiful. And that is exactly what is happening in Israel. Um, you know, the upper echelons of Israel's military and security systems, you know, like in some ways there's a real internal war in Israel. And there's an internal war in America as well. And in some ways, it's the same war, meaning the deep state of America is, in a lot of ways, the deep state in Israel. And the people of Israel are trying so hard to break free from that deep state right now. And that's what the judicial reform was really all about. But the upper echelons of the army, they are self-declared kind of atheist, secular people. And when you run an army, and you are a self-declared atheist, you have definitionally said, my power and my strength have done this wonderful thing for the security of Israel. And that, according to the Torah, is like the greatest invitation to be humbled and to have a ragtag group of terrorists come and break through all your technology and all your sophisticated fences and do exactly what they did to us on October 7th, because our strength does not come from the military leaders. Our strength and our security comes from Hashem and the brave, faithful soldiers that are now protecting us and fighting for us in Aza. And so that leadership lesson from Moses, I think, is spot on and speaks directly to us right now. But I think a lot of people don't really understand that, that the deep state in America is the deep state in Israel. 
that the Mossad and the CIA, they're somehow interconnected there, that there are some sort of forces that like Israel is trying to break the shackles of, that America is not our ally. The believers in God in America, the lovers of the Bible in America, they're our allies. But the American State Department, the Biden administration, they are not our allies. And the Torah is, needs to be the guide. And that's really what I wanted to share with you now. You know, I really have a constant desire to learn Torah. Am I learning Torah constantly? No. And I honestly think if you ask me why, Tehillah would say because I'm a doofus. Because I'm too busy or I'm too distracted or I have times in the day that I set aside to learn. I have times in the week where I set aside to learn together with Ari. And even though I'm not able to learn all the time for all my different excuses and all my reasons, my heart always wants to be learning. I know that. And someone asked me a long time ago when I was in yeshiva, and that's really when I did study all the time, every day, all day. It's like, you know, what happened, Jeremy? You weren't like that, you know, when you were younger. How can you be so happy learning Torah so many hours of the day? And in this war, the answer came to me. This war, an image came to me that answered the question that had been hovering over me for so many years. Imagine a soldier that's on the front lines and gets a loving letter from his father. And his father writes to him how much he loves his son, how proud he is of his son, gives him encouragement to be strong and brave and courageous. And he also gives him wise, true words of wisdom about how to get through the battles he's in, how to emerge victorious, that soldier would read that love letter from his father all the time. And I think that's a good way to see the Torah. And then you could understand why we would want to read that love letter Hashem gave us to get us through this world and to emerge victorious. We need to read that to remind ourselves the wise advice about humility and courage and kindness and love and truth the Torah is just there, a love letter from our Father to guide us in this world. And there are stories that I want to share with you of this fellowship. I mentioned them at the beginning. Um, they are stories of the real heroes of Israel. And they're stories that you'll never find on the mainstream media because they're not going to talk about one person that was a hero. And when we start reading uh, the book of names, the book of Shemot, um, we lose the individual story. It's not really about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know, Moses' name, he's not even mentioned when he's born. It's like, and a boy was born and, you know, a daughter of Levi married another man of Levi. And the names are almost removed because it's not about the individual anymore. It's about the nation in the book of Exodus. Like Israel is born as a nation. But it's important to remember that what makes up the nation of Israel are the most amazing individuals in the world. And to really connect to Israel, I want to bring one verse that even Tehillah now, she translated it a little bit off, and almost every English translation mistranslates this verse. And it's really important to understand. And it's something that not a lot of people notice, but this is Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brothers, and he saw them in their suffering. That's the greatest translation that I've been able to come up with. Usually it says, and he saw their burdens, or and he saw them suffering, or he saw their suffering. But that's not what it says. The Hebrew that you see right there is, Vayar besivlotam. He saw them 
in their suffering. It doesn't say vayar et sivlatam. He saw their suffering. No, no. He saw in their suffering. And what does that mean? The only way you can be a leader is to really feel the pain of your people. The only way to really attach yourself to Israel is to see them in their suffering, to be in their suffering with them. It's not enough to know about their pain, but it's to see them in their pain, to feel that pain a little bit within you. And I want to tell you now two stories that in order to understand who the people of Israel are, um, it's the only way that you can feel the pain that we're going through. And one of the stories is a little bit more distant for me. I don't know this man. And one of the stories is very close to me. So I didn't want to start crying immediately. So I'm going to start off with a story, and I'm going to try not to cry, of the story of the man that's more distant from me. It's just a story that I read about. And I spent a lot of time just translating the story into English, really to share it with you. Because the heroism of just a simple Jew living in the land of Israel, you never would have known that there are superheroes that walk around us and they don't have capes and they don't have superpowers. Because to be courageous when you have a superpower isn't really that courageous. But to be courageous when you're just a guy and those bullets can go right through you and take you out of this world, that's true heroism. And so this is a story of a man named Rami Davidian. And here's a picture of him. He's 58 years old. He's married to Iris. He has four children. The oldest of his children is 34, and the youngest of his children is 14. He grew up in a family of 11 children on a farm in the South. His parents um, were from a that kind of the Kurdish country. That's like the region around Iraq, around like the area of Turkey. It's like a little bit undefined. And their mother tongue was Arabic. And he grew up in Israel speaking Hebrew and working the land. And they had chickens and they lived on the farm and that's how they made their living. And they lived a hardworking, simple life connected to Eretz Israel, traditional believers in God. And they lived there his whole life. He lived on that Moshav, Patish in the northern Negev, just outside the kibbutzim that were attacked in October 7th. And he said that from the time he was born, he's been living in Patish. That's his home. It's like one big family there. He, everyone knows each other. And he says there's something really strong and powerful about living in such a tight-knit community. He says he has three brothers there and another three brothers that live in Ofakim, a small town near his Moshav. And October 7th, he was drinking a cup of coffee before going to synagogue, and he had no idea what was about to happen. At 6.45, he gets a frantic call from his friend who was begging him on the phone, Rami, there's a balagan. You live close. Go and drive and get the son of one of my friends. He's right by the music festival near Re'im. I told him, Sababa, no problem. He sent me the location, and I went driving, not really knowing that much of what was going on. And after driving a few hundred meters, I see a car on fire with people shot inside. I get back in the car and call the police, but there's no answer. I thought maybe this was some sort of uh, attack between Bedouin clans in the south. So I just continued driving. After a kilometer or so, I see exhausted young men and women 
running in panic in all directions. I shouted at them, come to me. And I started picking them up. They crammed into the car as much as possible. I didn't understand exactly what was happening, but it was clear that we had to get them out of there. In the process, I called my son-in-law and other people from the Moshav that I live in, and I told them that I needed help and that they should open up the shelters in the Moshav and take care of all of the guys and girls that I was bringing to them, and I wanted these children to get to a safe place. So after dropping them off, he went back, right back to the party, to rescue more young people. And all the while, as he's going through hills and valleys, he realizes he's being fired upon by terrorists, and they're running in every direction. They're shooting rocket-propelled grenades, missing his car, firing up bullets all around him. His car has bullets penetrating. And he says, after driving another kilometer, he sees another young couple hiding in the bushes, in the pits. And he shouted to them, hey, this is Rami, come with me. They come out scared from hiding. And again, 15 children cram into his car. And on the way, young Med shared with him all the horrors that they saw. They told me there are dozens of terrorists who arrived on foot, on motorcycle, in vans. They're shooting. They're murdering everyone in cold blood. And that's when he finally understood that we were in the middle of a catastrophe. And as the hours passed, he received more and more names of friends who were in distress in the field and needed rescue from the inferno. And due to lack of the response of the police or the IDF, my phone went through everyone and I received endless panicked messages from parents and siblings and worried friends from all over the country, sending him locations on WhatsApp how to find them. And so they wanted to find a police officer. He wanted to rescue whoever he could, but he was unarmed. And he realized there was no choice but to just keep on driving and to try to save as many lives as possible. And all along the road, he's seeing bullet-riddled vehicles on fire, bodies laying on the ground. He said it was heartbreaking. He raised his eyes to the sky and prayed for help from the creator of the world. And in one of the moments, he felt as though God touched him. He got a location from a friend, and he went to go and find her. She hid in the field, and I drove towards her. She wrote me, I'm begging you. It's urgent. Come quickly. There were internet outages, so I was on the line with her. I honked my horn and asked her to say, according, how she, if she could hear me. Is she close? Not. Hot. Cold. Where is she? She couldn't find him. Finally, five minutes, she somehow finally got close to her. He got out of the car and ran towards her. And this is his quote. To my astonishment, I saw her surrounded by six terrorists. I saw the armed terrorists, and at first moment, I froze in place. I didn't know what I was going to do. But God's hand touched me, and I began to speak with them in Arabic with confidence. I said to them, how are you? I'm Abu Rami. I'm a Muslim like you. Listen, there are soldiers on the way here. They're going to kill all of us. Let's run away. Give me that girl. I'll take her with me and you run away there. And after a few minutes of back and forth, they actually listened to me. I quickly put her in my car and drove away. Amit, the girl, was in severe trauma. 
On the way, I called my wife to receive her and try to calm her down until her family arrived. For the first 48 hours from 6.45, October 7th, Rami continued and he rescued more and more people looking for survivors and rescuing everyone he could, all under heavy fire. He says each rescue was more difficult than the previous one. I didn't see my house, my children. I didn't think about anything other than that. Apart from the rescues, I also collected a lot of bodies. I was working nonstop. I saw these children as my children, and I was working on automatic, like a machine. I don't know why God chose me, but I did everything that I could. Whoever thought about being a hero anyway? I'm often asked, how did I have the courage to enter an area infested with armed terrorists? And the truth is, I don't know. I'm not a hero. I was unarmed, and it was scary. But I hope that anyone else who comes in such a situation and saw children that needed to be saved would do exactly the same to save the children. I believe that God's hand touched me in those hours and directed me where to go, what to do, where to take those children. And as I'm driving through the wadis and fields, when above me and around me, there's nonstop shooting and bullets hit my car and I get out without a scratch. There's no explanation other than that was God's hand protecting me. For me, it was clear. I have a mission and I thank God for giving me the right to do it. He had one more message for the Jewish people living in Israel today. And he said, it's important to remember that for those terrorists, we were all Jews. Even when I rescued the children from the party, I didn't ask who's left wing and who's right wing, who's religious and who's secular. I saved everyone because we are all Jews and we are all brothers and sisters. We should also remember and never forget that. And so that is one of the most unbelievable stories that I've heard so far from the war. Can we put his picture back up there, Tabitha? His name was Rami Davidian. And he sells gas to the farmers in southern Israel. He's not a fancy man. He's not a superhero. But my Lord, the courage to do one act. You know, I can wrap my mind around that. You know, you, the house is on fire. There's an elderly man inside. Go inside the house and pull him out. I can wrap my mind around that. But every time he dropped those children off, he had to go back and forth and back and forth. Rami ended up saving 700 children from that music festival together with his Moshav. The level of heroism is just beyond. And you'd walk in the streets and you wouldn't look twice at him. And so I have one more story that I want to share with you. And I know that we're running a little bit out of time, but this is a story of a friend of mine whose son fell in Gaza. He was his firstborn son. 
and his name was Ephraim Yachman, or in English, Ephraim Jackman. He was a marvelous boy. Marvelous isn't the word. Um, the Jackman family have children that are really aligned with my children, but Ephraim was two years older than my oldest, so I knew him the least. But he was always sort of there, but I'm, I love the Jackman family. When I lived in Neve Daniel, we had Shabbat meals together. They're originally from England. They made Aliyah. And the quote at the end, we made a beautiful slide, but just to kick this off, they found his journal after he passed. And he wrote this, I don't know how long before he was taken from this world. And he wrote it after kitchen duty in the army. So you could imagine as he's scrubbing dishes where his mind was. I want to live a life of greatness with shining ideals where everything is clear and there's no emptiness inside, that God illuminates a great light in the soul that is thirsty for blue, that is turquoise, that is like the ocean and the throne of glory. And in Hebrew, it's amazingly poetic, although that's quite beautiful poetry as well. The Hebrew, it's beyond. And so Ephraim Jackman, when I went to his funeral, um, the rabbi, his rabbi, got up and he quoted this verse from the book of Samuel in chapter 16 that sort of introduces David onto the scene. And it says, and one of the lads answered and said, here I saw a son of Ishai from Bethlehem. He's a musician, a hero of a soldier and a man of war, a wise one and a beautiful person. And Hashem is with him. And here I saw Ephraim Jackman. He's a musician a hero of a soldier and a man of war, a wise one and a beautiful person. And Hashem is with him. And that's how they described him. Ephraim played the piano like another level, but he also played the guitar and the drums and the flute. And he was just a musician. He had a harmonica in his armed vehicle in Gaza with him. And as a boy, when he was younger, before his bat mitzvah, he finished all of Shas Mishnayot, all of the oral Torah of the Mishnayot, twice before his bar mitzvah. But he didn't ever want to show off. So usually a part of a bar mitzvah celebration is to celebrate what you've learned in honor of your bar mitzvah. So he just took this family to the Kotel in the old city of Jerusalem, and they celebrated as a family because he didn't want to show up all of his friends. How much more he learned than all of them. It's so much more. It's beyond so much more. To finish all of the oral Torah, all of Shas Mishnayot twice by your bar mitzvah is another level. And, you know, you hear stories from, because I was there five days. I just collected these stories to understand more and more what young man he was. When he was in high school, they did a seminar about healthy eating and how healthy eating is really a part about living a godly life. And from that point on, he stopped eating any processed sugar and he would started eating spelt bread and the healthiest types of food. But he was kind of a person that if all of the guys around him were like kind of snacking on junk food, so he wouldn't like be sort of condescending about it. You know, when Tehillah was in high school, we were still friends and she was a vegetarian. And I remember one time we're all like eating steaks together. And she's like, you know, the cows really suffered for those steaks. And I'm like, Tehila, can't you just wait until after we're done? You're like ruining the meal. Why do you have to be like that? Ugh. <laughs> and so like, he wouldn't do that. He would just like take one piece of like the unhealthy food just to be with his friends, like to be with them, to never feel like he was above them, to never show off. And, you know, 
when he left the house at 18, he called all of his brothers and sisters every Friday, spent two hours on the phone, just calling them such a family man, such a young man, but so focused around his family. And when you heard the brothers and sisters at the eulogies, you just saw how much they admired him. What a role model he was for them. Just the whole family was just like, you hear it from his rabbis, from his commanders, from his officers, and you just can't believe it. And one of the brothers said, you know, I remember when we were younger, you used to get angry a lot. And somehow you just fixed your midot, you fixed your attributes. I haven't seen you angry in years. And his father told me that when he first started high school, he had to get up early in the morning or he'd miss his bus. And the first year of high school, he missed the bus so many times. But by the time he was in yeshiva about to go into the army, they gave him the keys to the study hall in Yeshivat Yerucham because he was the first one in the study hall every single day before the sunrise. And somehow Ephraim continued to work on himself and fix himself until he became the most marvelous Jew that I've encountered in years. And, you know, um, in his free time, what did he do aside from playing beautiful music? He loved the land of Israel. So he would organize hikes for him and his family. There was never just like bumming around. It was constantly like just going after life, loving the Torah and loving the land. And when his rabbis were describing him, the first one every day in the study hall, in the Beit Midrash. And when he was learning, he just loved the Torah, shining light, just happiness. Everyone that learned with him was uplifted because he was such a wonderful person to be around, so optimistic, so happy, so joyful. And you heard about stories that when he was in the IDF, no one likes to do kitchen duty. Kitchen duty is the worst. I'm still traumatized from kitchen duty. Your hands get all ripped up because you're just doing so many. It's endless dishes. So he would always volunteer to do the grossest of all the jobs, like to clean the pots that are like the most like horrible. He would always volunteer to do the things that no one else wanted to do. And when he was serving in Hawara, which is in the Shamron, which is one of the hotbeds of terror in Samaria, he didn't go through officer's training course, but at one point they were just low on soldiers and he was promoted to become an officer without going through officer's training course. So he was operating as a soldier who had been through officer's training course with about three years of experience, but his time in the army, he was only there for about a year. That's unheard of in the army. And so with just a little bit more than a year of service in Hawara, that's not exactly an office job. He became a platoon commander, a mifaked machlaka befoal. And it's unbelievable. But what happened was he had a real dilemma. What about kitchen duty? On one hand, a katsin, an officer, never does kitchen duty. They have so many other meetings to go to. They have to meet with all the higher ups and they're up. They never sleep in kitchen duty. That's left for the soldiers. But he said, ah, but I'm not really an officer. Maybe I should still do kitchen duty. What about my sleep? And maybe if I do kitchen duty, that will lower the honor of the rank that I'm supposed to hold right now. And he was going back and forth. What is the right thing to do? And this story happened as I'm watching the father, Shmuel, who never heard this story. And he said, well, what did he do? And he said, he chose to do the dishes anyway. 
And the father was so happy to hear that story <laughs> that even though he was the officer, he chose to do kitchen duty anyways. He was just so good. But to understand how good in Gaza, in the middle of this war, he woke up before the sunrise to learn one daf of Gemara, because that's what he committed to do every single day. And in seven years, he would have finished all the Talmud. And every day at six in the morning, while everyone was asleep, he was up praying with the sunrise so no one would disturb him. And he spent every day in the middle of battle learning daf yomi, learning a day of Talmud every single day. And he was awarded the Mitztayen Pluga, which is the most valuable soldier in the battalion. That's out of like 150 soldiers to be selected as the MVP. It's like an award that very few ever get. And he received that award and no one knew. They only really found out after he died because he didn't want to show off. If I was awarded the Mitztayen Pluga, that would be a bumper sticker on my car. That I would have a t-shirt that everyone should know. I am the head of the, I am the most valuable soldier in the battalion. Uh, nice to meet you. My name is Jeremy Gimpel. I'm the MVP. Everyone would know. That would be the best shtick in the world. He received one of the highest honors you can receive as a soldier in the IDF. And he didn't tell anyone because he didn't want to be haughty. He didn't want to be arrogant. He was just so truly humble. And he left this world in the most heroic way. He saved his officer's life by jumping ahead and seizing the terrorist with his automatic weapon. And his officer demanded, left the hospital on the hospital stretcher bed to come to his funeral because Ephraim Yachman saved his life. And so he left this world in the most heroic act of selflessness and heroism that could be. And when I think about that wish or that prayer that he wrote in his journal, if we could put that up on the screen, I want to live a life of greatness with shining, sparkling ideals where everything is clear and there's no emptiness inside, that God illuminates a great light in the soul that is thirsty for blue, that is turquoise, that is the ocean, that is the throne of glory. And to see that this young man had fixed his sleep, fixed his food, fixed his honoring his parents, fixed his love for his family, heroic, courageous, a scholar. You know, what is that other than can you say, I saw a son, Ephraim Yachman, He's a musician, a hero of a soldier, and a man of war, a wise one, and a beautiful person. And Hashem is with him. It's like Hashem has taken the most beautiful souls from Israel, like his most precious. So to understand the pain that Israel is in now, is we are losing our greatest souls. There have not been Jews like these in 2,000 years. Jews could not be this way anywhere other than in this land. They grow to become Maccabees. They grow to become soldiers of King David. And the Torah and the spirituality fused with men of war that are just defending their people 
in the name of the God of Israel. There's nothing like it. There's never been a Jewish generation like the generation we're seeing now. And so we know that there's this internal war in Israel now. When I look at the, the generations in the West and the young, next generation, they're being brainwashed in universities. They're being brainwashed on TikTok. But the next generation that's rising up in Israel, that generation is going to save the world. So I just wanted you to have a little insight into the Jackman family and their loss and our loss. It's a loss for the whole world. But may his memory be a blessing. And may we take a little bit from his light and bring it into our own lives. And may he have an iluina shama, an elevation of his soul through our good deeds and our actions that he should inspire us. Such a young age. It's like he finished his job. He finished his mission. He just fixed himself to such a level that he was an angel on earth. That's what they said that some people, they strive to be angels. And his brother said, Ephraim, he was a boy who turned into an angel on this earth. And so may we all merit to take a little bit of that into our life. All right, my friends, it's been wonderful to get together. And so from this place, and with that, I want to bless you all with the blessing that Aaron, the high priest, blessed all of Israel with, and that every priest in the temple blessed all of Israel with, that my father blesses me every Friday night, and that I bless my children with every Friday night. May all of you be blessed from this land. Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.